Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishak Johnny, a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. In this episode, I sat down with Professor Christopher Cameron, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Professor Cameron was the founding president of the African American Intellectual History Society, and his research interests include African American religious and intellectual history, slavery and abolition, religious liberalism, and American secularism. His new book is titled Black Free Thinkers, A History of African American Secularism, and explores the place of free thought in black intellectual and political life from the 19th century to the present. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? Sure. I came to this project around mid to late 2012 while I was um, finishing up edits for my first book, To Plead Our Own Cause, and um, I was rereading Al Rabito's Slave Religion. I think I was chasing down a footnote or something like that. And I just so happened to come across a passage towards the end of the book where Rabito, um, you know, for most of the book, he had talked about sort of the development of a syncretistic form of African American Protestantism. And um, towards the very end, he has just a couple of pages where he notes, of course, not all slaves believed in religion. Some couldn't reconcile notions of a just and loving God with their conditions and slavery. And he goes on to list, you know, a couple of examples, um, nothing too, too in-depth, but it just sort of piqued my interest uh, quite a bit. I had never really read anything about um, non-belief among slave communities and for that matter, I really hadn't read much about uh, much from historians uh, about African American non-believers at all. So there is the um, theologian Anthony Penn, uh, who's written quite a bit about African American humanism, and one literary scholar, Michael Lackey, who's written a book on African American atheists. But that's pretty much it. Um, and like I said, nothing by historians. So from there, I sort of just started digging. Um, first in slave narratives and uh, looking for examples of non-belief in slave communities. And then from there, sort of uh, expanded the project uh, to look at uh, non-belief among blacks during the 20th century. And what has the response to your book been like so far? It's been pretty overwhelmingly positive so far. I mean, uh, only one review has come out on the um, Society for U.S. Intellectual History blog. That that was a positive review. Um, but just in terms of, you know, the engagement I'm seeing with folks on social media and all the people posting pictures with the book on Facebook or Instagram and some of the speaking invitations that I'm starting to get, I think people are are really excited uh, about this project. Um, and, and that's the case for academics who are interested in African-American religion and African-American intellectual history. But it's also the case for uh, African-American free thinkers themselves, right? So a lot of um, the speaking invitations I'm getting are from groups like Black Non-Believers of Atlanta. Um, I'm actually giving a talk tonight at Black Non-Believers of New York City. Um, and, you know, other secular groups like that, Unitarian Universalist churches. Um, so overall, I think it's it's been a pretty positive reception so far. <clears throat> That's great. Um, did you encounter any particular difficulties or methodological di surprises when you were reading your sources? Because as we've talked about a little bit um, earlier, and, and as you lay out in the introduction of the book, there is this sort of understanding broadly speaking, both among academics as well as the African-American community that you characterize in, in the introduction, that it is kind of the default position to think about African-American political and, and social life as conditioned by, by faith and by Christianity in particular. So how do you go about kind of diving into your, your sources in terms of method? Where did you start? Sure. Um, so I guess one difficulty that I encountered was when I, I started reading through a lot of slave narratives, some of the well-known ones, and then I just went on to Doc South, um, UNC, uh, UNC Chapel Hill's uh, online repository. 
repository of uh, primary sources from the American South. And I, I started looking for slave narratives from people that we don't really know a lot about, right? Individuals like uh, Austin Stewart, an enslaved man in Virginia. And, you know, as I was reading these narratives, I came, you know, I came across a lot of evidence for religious skepticism among slaves and for atheism and agnosticism. But one of the things I found is that um, these narratives always pointed towards other slaves who are skeptics, right? So Austin Stewart didn't come out, uh, for example, and say, um, the conditions of slavery made me a non-believer, right? Henry Bibb, another enslaved man, never said that I became uh, a non-believer because of slavery. So they always um, sort they, they kind of confirm the presence of religious skepticism in the slave communities, but not necessarily for themselves, right? Um, but I was able to uh, kind of get around this a bit. I mean, I, I think as sort of circumstantial evidence, um, the, the collection of these narratives is a compelling case for the presence of uh, secularism and free thought in slave communities. But um, I was also able to kind of confirm this from travelers' accounts um, from people like uh, Amy uh, Bishop Daniel Payne um, and Charles Colcock-Jones, a uh, Presbyterian missionary um, to slave plantations in the South who sort of likewise noted uh, the presence of religious skepticism. And um, luckily, I was able to find a couple of folks who did actually uh, kind of come out and discuss their own non-belief, right? So William Wells Brown uh, sort of hints very strongly at his anti-clericalism and secularism in uh, his slave narrative. And Frederick Douglass, in his second one, uh, um, his second narrative, uh, notes that um, he had been an atheist at one point in his life, and uh, his religious opinions covered sort of a wide range of uh, beliefs over the course of his life. So that, that was sort of one issue, and I, I think I found a good solution to it. Another was um, what to do with novels, right? So I found a lot of uh, a lot of free thought and um, atheism and secular themes in novels. But of course, you know, critics could always say, well, that's not necessarily the beliefs um, of the authors, right? They're, they're being creative and they're playing around with ideas and, and things like that. But luckily, again, I was able to find a solution there because with the work of Nella Larson, um, James Baldwin or uh, Lorraine Hansberry's play A Raisin in the Sun, there are uh, nonfiction sources like Letters and uh, James Baldwin's Fire Next Time um, and uh, an interview that Lorraine Hansberry did where they basically come out and kind of confirm that the people that they're writing about in their novels are indeed representative and reflective of their own views toward religion. So those are two of the kind of methodological challenges, reading slave narratives and novels. But um, I do think uh, in sort of doing a bit of kind of wider research, I was able to uh, overcome those. Right. And, and it seems really exciting this later moment that you talk about when people start writing about their own free thought and own religious skepticism. But to go back to, to where you began with writing about enslaved people talking about other enslaved people's religious skepticism or uh, ministers and travelers writing about it. Can you tell us more about what they're, what they're communicating when they talk about religious skepticism? What does it mean to these people to articulate that? Like, why is that significant for these people? Because it seems like over the course of the period, and there's a really remarkable kind of temporal range for, for the story you're telling, the significance of pointing out religious skepticism really changes. Is it particularly dangerous, for instance, for someone to be, you know, call, called a, a skeptic in the, in the earlier period when you're looking at these accounts of um, enslaved people talking about one another? I think in enslaved communities, it would have been, and for uh, the authors of slave narratives, it would have been dangerous for them to uh, sort of identify themselves as non-believers, which is makes it that much more surprising that Frederick Douglass actually did so in 1855. 
Um, but the, the true significance of pointing out um, pre the presence of religious skepticism, at least in the antebellum period, was that it, it made a powerful contribution ideologically to the anti-slavery movement, right? It's, it, it became sort of another argument uh, for the necessity of abolitionism. Right. Look at what slavery is doing. Um, you pro-slavery apologists are claiming that slavery is a way to Christianize uh, the heathen African population. But in fact, if you look closely, it's actually doing quite the opposite. Right. And it's it's pulling them away from Christianity uh, and pulling them away from all religious adherence uh, altogether. Right. So I think that that's the sort of true significance um, during the antebellum period. Now, after the Civil War, it, it does certainly become um, much more dangerous, I think, for people to openly identify as non-believers. But nevertheless, you get uh, folks who uh, who do do so, right? R.S. King, uh, for example, who was a, um, uh, a black free thinker in um, the late 19th and early 20th century. He wrote pieces for the truth seeker where he came out and said, you know, I'm an atheist um, and I'm, a, uh, I'm he actually referred to him as the leading uh, Negro free thought author uh, in the United States. So you do start to get people who are um, being a bit more open about their free thought sort of after uh, this civil war. But again, if you look at the places where they're being open, at least in the early 20th century, it's usually in the papers of leading free thought journals. <clears throat> right. And, and when we're talking about um, the antebellum context, and, and in particular, um, the shift before and after slavery, I guess the, the question for me that emerges then is, how are you, if you're looking at the American context, kind of breaking down how free thought is emerging geographically? Uh, particularly for your actors, are they thinking about what it means to be a religious skeptic or to be a free thinker um, in the North, in the South, uh, on the frontier? What What is their kind of geography like in their own minds, um, especially as, as, as people are moving around the United States? Mm -hmm. yeah, geographically, I think free thought among African Americans is much stronger in the South and, and the main reason for that is because it emerges uh, as a response to both the institution of slavery and the sort of growing strength of pro-slavery religion uh, after the 1820s. Now, that, that's not to say that it isn't um, present in the North at all, um, but we, we don't really have much evidence for its presence uh, among Northerners, aside from folks like William Wells Brown and Frederick Douglass, after they both uh, escaped from slavery and gained their freedom. Um, so prior to the Civil War, it's really concentrated in the South, but this uh, changes, changes pretty drastically um, after the Civil War. So you do start to get free thinkers cropping up in the Midwest, and especially in the West, right, with an individual like Lord A. Nelson, who was um, a black free thinker from San Francisco um, and, and others. And then in the early 20th century, really the sort of center of black free thought would become um, uh, New York City, right, with the rise of the Harlem Renaissance and with New York being uh, sort of a um, prime location for the development of, of um, the socialist and communist parties and African-Americans' participation in those parties. And, and now I guess I, I wanted to ask in, in particular the, this concept of free thought that is throughout your book and, and that we've been discussing. Um, how does that category emerge and to what extent are you using it as an umbrella term or, or kind of a, for a more specific um, type of, of intellectual or, or, or political conversation? Uh, mm -hmm. How does that term fit in, inside of the story you're telling? And is it yeah. a category for your actors um, in, in particular? Yeah, free thought really emerges in England during the late 17th century in response to the um, sort of growing influence and visibility of uh, skeptics like Charles Blunt and, um, and other deists in, in late 17th century England. Um, and it, it at that point, it was sort of an umbrella term to refer to 
um, to deists, to uh, atheists, agnostic, well, not really agnostics, but atheists and deists, really, um, and just those who kind of challenge traditional religious ideas. And in my book, I really do use it as something of an umbrella term. I adopt Susan Jacobi's um, use from uh, her book, Freethinkers, um, and basically use it for uh, referring to agnostics, uh, atheists, deists, and really those who um, either do not believe in God or believe in the type of God that really doesn't have any type of providential force or power uh, in human life, right? So this is how I can include somebody like uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who you know was a practitioner of voodoo, um, and was initiated into Avodun in um, New Orleans uh, during the early 1930s, but nevertheless notes that she did so more for a sense of community than for a belief in, in um, sort of the actual spiritual powers uh, of it. And later on in her autobiography would sort of characterize her belief in God as kind of agnostic or deist. So, yeah, for me, it, it really is... Uh, a term that reflects kind of a spectrum of irreligiosity, and some people can believe in God and be free thinkers, but the type of God they believe in really uh, doesn't have much power or role in human history. Right, and when we're thinking about uh, a narrative like the one that you've set out with this extraordinary um, set of contestations and 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 diversity in in how people are approaching this concept. Um, you're very clear in your introduction that part of why you came to the project is because the the stakes of this question of the, the, this really common assumption um, that black intellectual and political and, and social life have been conditioned by a particular kind of faith. Um, you, you write about the fact that that is not only incorrect based on the, the story that you've been telling and the sources that you have, but also um, it, not helpful, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to ask you then, when framing the stakes of a book like yours, what are the, the dangers or pitfalls of, of making that assumption, I guess, historiographically, um, as well as politically? Sure. Um, so I, I think this assumption of um, kind of innate African-American uh, religiosity has, has had sort of a, a few different uh, kind of harmful effects. One, it's really um, prevented scholars from taking seriously the uh, impact and influence uh, of religious skepticism on black political and intellectual life, right? So this, this isn't to say that scholars have completely ignored um, African-American free thought, right? Um, W.B. Du Bois's uh, biographer, David Levering Lewis, for example, in his um, two-volume biography of Du Bois, certainly does acknowledge and note that Du Bois was an agnostic. But it doesn't seem to be as kind of central of a category um, for Lewis as uh, it might be if Du Du Bois was a devout evangelical Christian, and then you might get some analysis um, of how Du Bois's evangelical Christianity informed his ideas on um, democracy or nationalism or internationalism or capitalism or, or whatnot, right? And, and you kind of see this again and again, where somebody might, you know, very briefly mention that somebody was a non-believer, but there's no sense that that has any influence on their worldview at all. And, you know, just being sort of familiar with non-believers in contemporary American society, I just, I had a feeling that that was not the case, right? That if somebody makes the very difficult choice to reject something that most other people in their society and in their communities believe in, that that rejection is going to be an important part of their life, right? And it's going to inform a lot of other ideas. So I do think that this um, this idea that African Americans are naturally religious or even uh, overly religious or are automatically Christian, um, it, it's really given us a skewed understanding of 
sort of the sources of black political thought um, and of the kind of depth and complexity of African-American intellectual life more broadly. Right. And, and you mentioned Vudan a moment ago. Uh, Islam comes up in your book as well. Um, mm. I, I, and part of what you're also writing against is the tendency to think about Christianity um, as the kind of overwhelming faith or, or outlook um, that has conditioned uh, Black political and, and social life. What yeah. other faiths, traditions have been significant for, for your narrative? And how are you bringing those together with sort of the, the more dominant story of Christianity um, either uh, people rejecting Christianity or or uh, living inside of it. Kind of, what are these other alternatives that you've you've just mentioned um, doing for mm-hmm. it? Well, one of the things I think the book shows is that um, African American atheists and agnostics aren't just rejecting the Christian God; they're rejecting other gods too, right? Um, so, so some of them, um, like Eldridge Cleaver, for example, had uh, basically become a uh, mu- a black Muslim while he was in prison, and this was sort of a common experience. Uh, among African Americans during the 1950s and 1960s, right? So some of the folks I'm looking at are are rejecting Allah, right? In uh, and not just Jehovah. Um, others are sort of um, creatively combining, pra- uh, you know, uh, other uh, practices like Vodun. Um, and uh, with their secularism, right, and and sort of doing so for a community. Um, One of the things I'm finding in um, the current book that I'm writing right now, Liberal Religion and Race in America, which is an exploration of African Americans and uh, Unitarian Universalism since um, before the denomination was merged, uh, since the early 18th century, um, up to the creation of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism a few years ago. One of the things I'm finding is that there's a, a lot of intersection between uh, secularism and free thought and uh, African-American Unitarians uh, and Universalists in the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries, right? So an individual like uh, Fanny Barrier Williams, who um, was a member of All Souls Unitarian Church in Chicago, one of the things that drew her to that congregation was the free thinking um, of the um, minister, Jenkin Lloyd Jones, right? Um, Errol Collymore was another African American Unitarian at a church in in, uh, White Plains, New York, um, during the 1930s and 1940s. And in uh, early uh, 1944, I believe, he gave a sermon at his church noting that, you know, he'd been sort of searching and questing and he still didn't believe in God. And in this sermon, he basically advances some of the same ideas as folks that I uh, look at in Black Freethinkers, like Richard Wright, uh, and Hubert Harrison and Zora Neale Hurston. So you can definitely see um, a, a lot of kind of crossover between the history of African-American religious liberalism, uh, especially in Unitarian churches, uh, and African-American secularism and free thought. Right. Um, and, and so now I, I just wanted to ask you on, on precisely that question, with the way that your book begins with the actors you're looking at really working to parse the relationship between uh, faith, belief, non-belief, and the institution of slavery. Um, what What is that discussion like? What are those conversations like in, in, in particular? Because it's not coincidental, and you point, point that out, that uh, the concept of free thinking and the concept of a, a freedom from slavery and the institutions of, of white supremacy in the United States, these seem like very self-consciously put together uh, by by the intellectuals and, and, and thinkers you're, you're looking at. So what, what how are we to, to understand that relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I found is that some some folks will start off sort of critiquing just the religion of slavery, right and, and just um, southern preachers and southern slaveholders. Uh, so this is the case with um, Frederick Douglass and his, some of his earlier works, especially his first narrative in 1845. 
Um, but then as, as, you know, things like the fugitive slave law occur and there's seemingly little movement on uh, this question of abolition and, and in the broader abolitionist movement, um, you start to see some folks getting a, a little more radicalized, Douglas and William Wells Brown, uh, especially in his novel Clotel, and, and they move from a critique just of Southern religion and Southern churches to basically argue this, this isn't just a Southern thing, right? This is American Christianity writ large, right? Yes, Southern ministers are the ones um, preaching to slaves that they need to be obedient to your masters and and all of that, but northern churches aren't really doing anything to help end slavery. Most of them are uh, ambivalent or indifferent, and some are actually supporting slavery, right? Some churches and some ministers, uh, like the Unitarian minister Ezra Siles Gannett, were arguing that you need to follow man's law instead of uh, what Douglas wanted folks to do and follow sort of a higher law, right, uh, and resist things like the Fugitive Slave Act. So I think you start to see sort of among some uh, free thought writers, some black free thought writers, kind of a, a growing radicalism as the um, 1840s and the 1850s come about um, and sort of a broadening of their critique and a development um, of their kind of secular perspectives because of the fact that the anti-slavery movement doesn't seem to be um, making the progress that they had hoped. Right, and, and, and you also write about, um, on, on this question of, of radicalism and, and radicalization and the kind of politics that people are also involved in, Another big intellectual and, and political tradition in, in your book is, is feminism, and in particular, the work of black feminists. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of in, in parallel or, or as an analog to anti-slavery, as the 19th century turns into the 20th, um, you're writing a lot about the, the place of free thinking and feminist thought in particular, because you're writing about these different and, and, and related ways to critique these institutions, whether it's the church, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's um, patriarchy. Um, so how how are you seeing that that kind of come into the story that you're telling? And, and what sort of role is that playing as we look at this development of, of the intellectual tradition of, of free thinking? What are kind of feminists and, and feminist thought doing for you in your story? Sure. Um, so I kind of came to uh, my link between feminism and free thought after reading the work of uh, Eric S. McDuffie, his book uh, Sojourning for Freedom, which looks at uh, black women, um, communism, and the rise of what he terms black left feminism. And, and in this work, he notes that, you know, 50 years, almost 50 years before the sort of development of of what we now know as the black feminist movement and black feminist ideology, there were individuals like uh, Audley Moore, uh, Louise Thompson Patterson, Elizabeth Hendrickson, and others who were already articulating uh, some of the key ideas um, of black feminism, including uh, a focus and an emphasis on the sort of intersectional nature um, of oppression and an analysis of the kind of intersection between race, class, and gender. Um, so McDuffie's work sort of introduced me to uh, figures like Louise Thompson Patterson and others. And then, um, you know, he, he doesn't discuss their non-belief in depth, but he does discuss their sort of challenge to uh, respectability politics their challenge to the ideology of, of Christian club women during that time. Uh, so from there, I went kind of digging into Louise Thompson Patterson's papers at Emory University um, and w was able to find some uh, specific and clear evidence of her own non-belief in an unpublished uh, memoir that's part of her papers. Um, and I also turned to uh, writers of the time like Nella Larson and Zora Nick Hurston, and especially relied on literary criticism from folks like um, Cheryl Wall and Cheryl Higashida and, uh, and others who um, also sort of placed them within 
in this kind of proto-feminist uh, tradition. Um, so exploring the works of somebody like Nella Larson and her 1928 novel Quicksand, you can pretty clearly see that for Larson, um, Christianity is intimately tied up with the sort of patriarchal ideals of the day. And um, this tying together is something that for the central character in the novel, Helga Crane, becomes an incredibly oppressive force that almost destroys her, right? After having her fourth child uh, in three years, um, after she had quickly married a revival preacher, um, she's laid up in a sick bed, uh, almost passes away, and is thinking that she had destroyed her life, right? And she had done so because she sort of followed the um, traditional family and patriarchal ideals uh, of black America at that time. So whether it's in um, novels, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's memoir, or whether it's in sort of the political activity uh, of women like Elizabeth Hendrickson or Louise Thompson Patterson, we see a very clear tie um, between an articulation of religious skepticism and a challenge to patriarchal ideals beginning in the early to mid 1920s. And I think these, uh, as McDuffie notes, would really provide something of a blueprint for the development of uh, black feminism a few decades later. Right. And, and as we start to move into those decades, particularly, um, as you had mentioned a little bit earlier into the interwar period, um, another strand that becomes woven in with feminism, with um, abolitionist and anti-slavery thinking is, of course, the involvement of many Black activists, writers, thinkers, not just free thinkers, um, in sort of the international radical left, um, which sometimes is oriented towards state socialism in the USSR, but, but at other times is this distinctly American um, Black left internationalism. So once we get that um, sort of woven into the story, um, as a way to critique the state in the United States, but also to think about different kinds of configurations for, for racial politics. Um, how, are, how, how would you characterize that moment, especially because it's sort of the meeting of these two um, developments for, for atheism and religious skepticism, right? One coming out of communism and the other coming out of this longer pre-existing tradition in America of Black free thinking that you've laid out for us. Um, so how are, how are you seeing that? Pardon me, how, how are you seeing that um, factor in? Is this a real shift once we start to think in this kind of scale or, or is it really more of a continuation of the same discussion for you just now with kind of a different geopolitics? Um, you know, because there are so many ways to, to tell that story. What, what was that um, moment like for, for you and your narrative? Sure. Um, in my mind, this is one of the, I think, the key contributions of the book. There is an extensive scholarship on African-American communists and black radical politics in the early 20th century from uh, folks like Mark Nason and Robin D.G. Kelly uh, and others. However, most of the scholarship doesn't attribute um, the development of uh, and the rise of African-American socialism and communism to religion, right? We see uh, arguments for the importance of uh, Caribbean immigrants who had already been, been exposed to socialism uh, back in the Caribbean. We see the importance of communist support for uh, the Scottsboro Boys, for example, um, and just the, the, the attraction of an, an internationalism and a class-based politics that might be able to undermine racism. But um, I, in, in exploring all of this literature, I really didn't see anybody uh, tying uh, the rise of black communism and socialism to religion, right? But it is the case that both the socialists and communist parties expected their members to be non-religious, right? And I think it was in 1924, uh, the Coleman turn put out a directive saying that we, you know, we very clearly expect all communists around the world uh, to be atheists. Like this is the default 
default position uh, for a communist, right? Uh, and the party, uh, communist and socialist parties in the United States would almost sort of persecute members who they found going to churches, even liberal churches like Harlem Unitarian Church uh, in New York City, right? Um, so uh, one of the things my book does is it, it shows that uh, skepticism and non-belief went hand in hand uh, with communism. And I think a number of um, people like Hubert Harrison, um, Louise Thompson, Patterson, and others were attracted to these parties because of their non-belief. It wasn't just some uh, sort of incidental thing or something like that. Um, I think their, their non-belief sort of drew them to, uh, to their, these parties. Um, and also, it, it was sort of a dialectical process whereby you know, once you're around other non-believers, then you're, you're sort of building community. You're able to kind of refine your ideas a bit. So it was also the case that participating in these parties um, probably strengthened uh, some of these individuals' um, non-belief. <clears throat> right. And, and here, as well as with um, the feminist movement, as well as with abolition and anti-slavery, um, another thread that is running through your book that I, I think is one of the real, really exciting strengths of it is um, the relationship between thinking about this as an African-American question um, and thinking about this as uh, a, a global or, or transnational question that the actors that you're looking at um, coming from the American context with an experience of both faith and, and, and race and racialization in America are really thinking in global terms and transnational terms are in conversation um, there. So how, how then are, is, does scale factor into your question or place? Um, are your actors thinking about America as their kind of sphere for, for politics and intellectual life? Um, and, and when does that change for them, if, if it does change? Um, so I think this question of scale and geography certainly comes in, and this really intersects with um, with the rise of communism in the critical influence um, of Caribbean activists in both the Communist Party and in you know sort of the book in general. Um, they show up in uh, the Harlem Renaissance as well as um, sort of black radical politics. So. Um, in starting around the early 20th century, uh, due to sort of economic depressions and things like that, and then sort of accelerating a bit with World War One, you started to get sort of massive Caribbean immigration um, to the United States. Now, some of these individuals coming from Barbados and Jamaica and Antigua and St. Croix and, and other places, they were coming from places with an established state church um, where they kind of that were expected to attend religious services. Um, and uh, some of them had kind of developed their free thinking and, and non-belief even prior to coming to the United States. And a number had been uh, influenced by socialism as well, too, right? Um, one figure like Claude McKay, for example, became a free thinker um, and an active member. Um, of, a, of a British free thought organization while he was in Jamaica. Um, this is after he went to live with his brother and then sort of brought that perspective uh, to the United States. So I think um, a, a number of people had sort of uh, a much broader, I think, sensibility um, than African-Americans, right? And um, had sort of traveled around quite a bit more, had experienced racism and discrimination um, in other places, had been exposed to uh, political ideologies that American blacks hadn't necessarily been. Uh, so that certainly becomes an important part of the story, especially during uh, the 1920s. <laughs> right, and, and the place of the world wars as well is, is crucial, as, as you just pointed out, because once we move into the sort of post-45 context and these decades after the war see the rise of the civil rights movement um, and these distinctly alternative radical models of political life like black power. Um, I, think, I think your book does a really good job of talking about how 
these claims on the institution of slavery or on patriarchy sort of have this this effect and, and morph into these claims on the American state in particular, on uh, racist laws inside of America, and then claims on the state and on participation in political life start to interact with this long tradition of, of free thinking inside of the African-American um, community and, and intellectual milieu. So as we move into these decades after your 20s, 30s, 40s moment, um, how are free thinkers bringing their approach to non-religious life to these demands for really concrete changes to the way the state and the law acts on uh, their community? Probably the clearest way that they're doing so is through, um, well, two different mediums. One, the Black Panther Party. Um, and uh, in the Black Panther Party, you had uh, a publication uh, titled The Black Panther that uh, at some times became something of a free thought publication in, in publishing uh, poems and letters and things like that that were intensely critical um, of Christianity and that were calling for um, the rise of black humanism. The sort of platform of the Black Panther Party was humanist uh, in nature. Um, Huey Newton, the leader of the party, specifically noted that the party's kind of central um, strategy, the free breakfast program, this is their central strategy for, one, making a difference, but two, also for building up the Black Panther Party, he specifically noted that this is a humanist endeavor, right? This is the people um, recognizing that no deity is going to do anything for them and that they need to sort of take their economic fortunes into their own hands um, and kind of make something happen for themselves economically and politically, right? Uh, same thing with the free clinics that they operated at various locales uh, throughout the United States. Um, their general approach as well, I think, was very critical of African-American Christianity, um, displayed the type of anti-clericalism that has been common among freethinkers since the time of you know, Thomas Paine in, in the late 18th century, um, in terms of like going to black ministerial conferences and sort of disrespecting uh, some of these individuals. So the party becomes a kind of critical way for uh, free thinkers to come together to share their irreligious ideas. And this is a very sort of intellectual endeavor with reading groups and uh, things like that. Um, so that's one medium. But this uh, civil rights moment and the black power uh, movement also helped to spawn uh, a black arts movement that in some ways was akin to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, um, but also departed from that um, as well. And in the black arts movement, we see uh, the writings of people like Lorraine Hansberry, uh, James Baldwin, Sarah Webster Fabio, Yvette Pearson, and others that uh, once again are sort of uh, able to use their literature um, to not only express their free thought, but, but to make sort of political critiques um, against the system of Jim Crow uh, and against American racism. Right, and, and how are these these thinkers and, and activists in some cases um, parsing the relationship between at least what is what is now, and I imagine at the time, considered the sort of faith-based or uh, church-based um, focal point of the civil rights movement and calls for justice, which is to say, c considering this type of faith in opposition to the Christianity of white supremacy, you know, you see parallels now with the place of um, kind of the the Christian ideology or Christian motifs in, in articulations of white supremacy now. How are folks parsing the relationship between the place of faith and calls for justice among uh, people of faith active in the civil rights movement and their own form of um, free thinking or, or irreligious um, claims to that kind of justice? Like, are, is that a barrier for people or are people thinking more eclectically when it comes to the kind of coalition um, that I think characterizes a lot of these kinds of movements 
for justice. Yeah, it, it's a very complicated story. So nearly all the free thinkers I explore uh, in in chapter four on the civil rights movement, like James Foreman and, and Stokely Carmichael, uh, Huey Newton, and um, Sarah Webster Fabio and, and others, nearly all of them are, are pretty opposed to sort of white American Christianity, which they see as sort of intimately tied uh, to racism. Many of these individuals as well are highly critical of African-American religion and African-American preachers because they see black religion as too otherworldly, right? And they don't see um, African-American religion and the strategies of uh, preachers like Martin Luther King as having enough of an impact. At the same time, practically, if you're going to be a black political activist, you do have to work with religious people, right? Um, and you do have to work with religious leaders. So Huey Newton at times could be very critical uh, of black Christianity, um, but there were also times where he was working with African-American preachers and setting up using their churches for his free breakfast program in different locales, right? James Baldwin could be intensely critical uh, of an otherworldly strain of African-American Christianity, but in the fire next time would still note that there's, um, you know, there's nothing like the sort of joy and the music and the feelings that you get in a black Pentecostal church, right? Nothing could really rival that. Same thing with somebody like Langston Hughes, right? Again, same thing, critiques white Christianity, at times could critique uh, black preachers, but always use sort of religious language and, and imagery. So I think it's it's a fairly kind of complicated story um, in that intellectually and, and ideologically, a number of these people were opposed to both black and white Christianity, but on a very practical level, they knew that they needed churches and they needed church people if they were going to affect any lasting political changes. Right, and, and I think what's really helpful about your book is that it really doesn't shy away from treating these conversations precisely as places of contestation and a place where people are making choices and thinking about their faith, their their belief or non-belief, and then the kind of very practical political practice that, that so many of them are, are engaged in. Um, and I think that's, that's you know, really, really valuable. Um, I'm afraid we're almost out of time, but before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask to sort of bring this full circle to the, you know, speaking invitations that you've been getting, the conversations you've been having now. Um, you, you, your book spans this almost 200-year history. What then is the place of, of free thought now and, and what is a helpful way to understand that today, particular, particularly in, in these groups and, and communities that you've been invited to, to come share your work in, um, but also when we think about kind of the horizons of um, black political and intellectual life now, how, how are you kind of thinking about that maybe differently after you've written your book or um, what, can, what can the story that's in your book bring to bear on thinking about that today? Sure. Um, so one of the things that we see in my book is a lot of individuals um, who are free thinkers. And um, sometimes these individuals kind of come together in particular intellectual movements like the Harlem Renaissance or political movements like the Black Panther Party. And while uh, the Black Panther Party may have been sort of a secular organization, it, it was creative for for political purposes, right? It wasn't something like American Atheists that was created for secular purposes and then has political functions. Um, so in, in the period after the Civil Rights Movement, which is pretty much where the book ends, right around 1975, one of the probably the key development and one that I'll be exploring in a second volume on Black Free Thought is the institutionalization um, of black free thought beginning in the late 1980s. So a number of free thinkers had been, you know, comfortable in um, the American Ethical Union, uh, societies for ethical culture, and Unitarian Universalist churches, um, but not 
you know, and also in secular organizations like American Atheists, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, but they never occupied a particularly large percentage of any of these groups. And so one of the things that you see after uh, the civil rights period is the creation of specific um, black secular organizations like Norm Allen Jr.'s creation of African Americans for Humanism in 1989, um, the creation of local groups like Black Skeptics of Los Angeles, which was founded by Sakibu Hutchinson, uh, as well as um, more national groups like Black Nonbelievers, which was uh, founded by Mandisa Thomas and initially uh, was just uh, one group in Atlanta and now has branches all throughout the country. I think they're up to like 13 or 14 branches in major cities throughout the country. Um, so that's probably sort of the, the key development um, organizationally or, or institutionally uh, in Black Free Thought. And just sort of anecdotally, one of the things I'm also seeing is a sort of growing um, visibility for black non-believers uh, in black popular culture, right? And a sort of uh, adding some complexity to African-American religious ideas, uh, ideas as opposed to the sort of stereotypical depictions of African-American religiosity, right? And, and even getting TV shows like Blackish that are exploring uh, questions of atheism and non-belief uh, in the black community. So I think uh, popular culture as well as the sort of growing institutional base of black free thought are probably two of the key developments um, that we're seeing uh, today. Right. And um, I'm afraid with that, we're going to have to wrap up. But uh, before we do that, I, I just wanted to thank you so much for um, this really wide ranging conversation that, that we've been able to have. Um, and I'm really excited for people to, to get a chance to read your book. So, so thank you so much. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thank you.